Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. I'm Banneker Bones and the Alligator People and the upcoming untitled, yet-to-be-revealed third Banneker Bones adventure, which will be available early next year. Uh, but I don't want to talk about that so much tonight other than to remind you that Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is available as a paperback, an audiobook narrated by the exquisite David Radke, and the ebook is free free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Um, but tonight we're going to be talking a lot about um, a spooky young adult novel set in Indiana. And I have one of those uh, under my super secret pen name, Robert Kent. And since I assume that's that's who's listening tonight, that's who wants to know more. Let me tell you about All Together Now, a zombie story. Uh, it is the zombie apocalypse set in my hometown of Lebanon, Indiana, but I don't call it that. I call it Harrington, Indiana, throw people off. Uh, and uh, what, a, what a lot of fun to imagine zombies attacking my high school. Uh, it is um, the first novel where I really just kind of stopped trying to be an author and just wrote the story of my heart. Uh, and the story of my heart is just a zombie story. It's The Walking Dead, but in Indiana. Uh, I didn't even try and church it up and call the zombies you know, unconsecrated or walkers or some kind of super secret name to pretend that we're not doing zombies. No, these are zombies. They got white eyes. They're walking slow. They are dead. Uh, and it's uh, about the characters and what happens to them. Our uh, narrator is um, a 15-year-old boy named Ricky Gennaro, and his concern is his brother Chuck, a six-year-old little brother, has been infected with the zombie virus, and he believes there's a cure. So they set out amongst the zombies uh, to find a cure for Chuck. Do they find it? Do they get bitten? Well, you have to read to find out. There is a scene toward the end of that book that's just, a, a for me, a quintessential Indiana zombie scene because I figure the zombie apocalypse doesn't happen in Indiana uh, without uh, Walmart and some churches, a lot of churches. Uh, and there's a scene, I want to tell you about it, but it would be too spoilery. Uh, but it involves a zombie and a communion table. And I remember after I wrote it, I just went for a long walk and went, oh, my God, Kent, what have you done? You have to rewrite that. You can't do it. Uh, that's the most offensive thing you could ever write. And it was until I wrote The Book of David, also available. And that book is bonkers. The Book of David is my attempt to be Stephen King. Uh, it's a long horror story set in Indiana as well. It's about an atheist who buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions about flying saucers. It is nuts. And it's available as a serial novel. It's five chapters long. Uh, the first chapter is available for free as an ebook to download whenever you're watching or listening to this. That's the Book of David, Chapter One by Robert Kent. And it starts off a little bit, a little bit nuts. Uh, by the book two, uh, it's a lot more nuts. There's a character named Sexy Jesus who may or may not be the actual Jesus. Crazy. Jesus, flying saucers. And it, by the time you get to five, it's so out there, out of this world insane that I figure it's your fault because you had four chapters you could have stopped reading and you kept going. So if you want to see me use all kinds of profanity, all kinds of madness, the Book of David is the book for you. Um, coming up on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast, you know what? I've decided to stop saying who the next guest is because I always say it and I'm frequently wrong uh, because episodes get rescheduled. 
Um, air dates get moved. So the next guest is going to be somebody amazing. If you want to see who's coming up on the show, go to middlegradeninja.com. I've got a list of all of the future show dates and who's going to be there. Uh, and that's it in terms of uh, plugging stuff. Let's get right to it. Tonight we're talking uh, to an author I have never met before and I'm very curious to learn more about, uh, Francesca Zappia, who happens to live here in Indiana. Francesca, total stranger, how are you? Total strangers. <laughs> I am doing great. I am doing just fine. And since I have you? absolutely no idea who you are, I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking. Uh, please tell esteemed audience a little bit about yourself and, uh, yeah, who you are. Uh, okay, so my name is Francesca Zappia. Um, I go by Chessie usually. I live here in Indiana. I've lived here my entire life. I started writing when I was eight. Um, started trying to get published when I was 15. And my first book came out uh Literally the month I graduated from college, and it's called Made You Up. Uh, my second book is called Eliza and Her Monsters, and my third book is called Now Entering Adamsville, and it comes out, or is out, now. Through the magic <laughs> of time travel. <laughs> Through the magic of time travel, it's already available. Um and my first two books, Made You Up, is about uh, a girl who has paranoid schizophrenia and is kind of trying to navigate her senior year of high school. Um, Eliza and Her Monsters is about a girl who has uh, anxiety and she draws a super popular webcomic, but she draws it anonymously so nobody knows who she is. Um, and she wants to be recognized for what she's made, but she also uh, is kind of you know, terrified and has extreme social anxiety about what would happen if people knew who she is. Um, and then the third book, Now Entering Adamsville, is a little bit different from both of those because it is kind of a paranormal, horror, mystery, fun Scooby-Doo romp with ghosts in a small Indiana town known for its ghost tourism and a main character who is missing two fingers and carries around an axe and goes hunting demons so that is me i love it <laughs> i uh really really enjoyed that book i was uh i've enjoyed all of your books um but uh that that was my jam it's like now entering out is like yes or yes. in indiana i was gonna I, I went back and forth on whether or not I should compare it a little bit to Scooby Doo because like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to say it's a cartoon. It's it's not, but yeah, it's a little bit Scooby Doo. <laughs> I mean, it's a little cartoony. That's a, I feel like that's the thing about my books is that like they're never gonna be full on like super hardcore, you know, because it's always there's always a little bit of a cartoon in them, um, and so it is a little cartoony. Um, but there's some serious parts and there's, you know, there's serious parts, there's funny parts, you get the whole range. I like to think that in my books you get the whole range of emotions and, and feelings about them, but there are definitely the cartoony parts for sure. And I do call them the Scooby gang at one point in the book, I think. So, you know. Should have been a clear sign that it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. It's uh, such a such a fun read, and it was uh, interesting to me because I you know I think of you as the uh, the made you up girl, um, woman, person, yes. um, but the the made you up person who I have met uh, multiple times now, um, 
and uh, made you up was not a not a completely serious serious book, but but a fairly serious book. Yeah. Um, very uh, literary, uh, but not in a bad way. Like, mm-hmm. a, it, was, it was a very fun book. I remember laughing multiple times while I read it. But I thought, okay, uh, as I do, even though I hate it when people do it to me, I put I put you on my little uh, Francesca Zappia box and said, well, that's the kind of book that Francesca Zappia writes. But no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Entering Adamsville uh, is, um, I don't want to say it's completely different because you can still see that that Chessie DNA in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it's, it's its own separate thing where it feels like you're you're having a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was when I started writing that book, when I was conceptualizing it, so much of it was like, well, what's going to be fun? What do I like? I like ghosts. I like, you know, that idea of somebody who's hunting things down. I like the reluctant heroine. I like, um, you know, I like angry girls who are like still trying to do the right thing, um, but are just just a little annoyed with everybody. Um, there are just so many things in there that I really, really like and just enjoyed writing about. And because of the paranormal aspects and, and the, the supernatural part of it, I got to be a little silly, too. Um, and I got to put in, you know, like demons that set things on fire and but aren't necessarily evil and ghosts and um, like all kinds of mysteries. I was about to say a spoiler. Oops. But I caught myself. <laughs> It's your book. If you spoil it, that's fine. If that's, I spoil it, that's terrible. <laughs> that's, then you're <laughs> then in, in trouble. trouble. If I spoil it, that's uh, that's on me. That's your prerogative. <laughs> yeah, right. I'd be so mad with myself if I spoiled that. Although I'm sure, like, it's really funny because the one, the one real like spoiler in that book, I feel like is going to be things that people from Indiana are like, they're just going to be confused about it. The whole book, they're going to be like, what is this? And then at the end, they'll be like, oh, okay. And then people who aren't from Indiana are not even going to realize that it's a thing or that it's a problem. At least a lot of them won't, but, you know. No, we Hoosiers are our own special, unique brand. We, we have secrets that the rest of the world can't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like what our state looks like. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> this is not going to make sense to anybody who hasn't read this book. So go read the book. Yeah. One of my favorite gags in the Book of David is the is a constant repeat of uh, Jack and Diane. It's playing on almost every radio they walk by. It's like that's an Indiana joke. If you haven't been listening to Indiana radio stations, you you don't know. But we really really like that song. <laughs> Very important question: Do you believe in ghosts? Uh, okay, so I have many thought out. Uh, I, I've thought about this a lot. Um, because I watch a ton of like ghost hunting shows. I, I live in a haunted house. Um, so I... Okay, pen on that. We're coming back to that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's usually, yeah. Um, so I believe that there's something. To say specifically what it is, I, think, I believe in ghosts as like a general concept of a thing, like some kind of energy or like a thing that's that's you know, inhabiting a space that we can't necessarily see or understand. Um, I don't know necessarily that they fit all the very specific definitions that people have given them over the years. Um, But I have experienced, and I think a lot of people, like when you end up, when you experience something, 
you're kind of, you, you just become a, you're like, well, I know what happened to me and I know I didn't, you know, make that up. So yeah, I, I, there, there's, there's something going on for sure. So that experience enables you to say, okay, well, if that's happening to me, probably lots of other ghost stories are also true. Well, so it, it definitely enabled me to be super curious about it. And so then I started going out and like, you know, once I get to know somebody well enough, I'm like, okay, what are your ghost stories? Like, have you ever experienced anything? And then I just collect other people's ghost stories. Um, and so, and like hearing from people who I know to be very like trustworthy people and people who don't, you know, scare easily or don't get um, freaked out by things or don't jump to conclusions. When people I know who are like that, who have had these experiences and are telling me these things that they're like, I know this happened. I know what it sa- I know it sounds out there, but this this is real. This happened to me. I know what it like. I know what I felt. And then after they tell me that, I'm like, yeah, okay, that that happened to you. Like I trust you. Um, and you know, they, on the ghost hunting shows and stuff, they're like, say like, oh, you know, electromagnetic signals or whatever, like wiring, exposed wiring or whatever can cause the um, kind of like that feeling of like being watched or that kind of stuff. You live in an old house, things creak, doors close on their own, stuff like that. I understand. You know what else that. causes that feeling is being watched. Being <laughs> watched by a ghost. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get all of that. But also one time I was hiding in a closet and I felt a hand on my shoulder and I could feel all four fingers and the thumb pressing into the back of my shoulder as if somebody like an adult was standing behind me and grabbed my shoulder and just squeezed. And I was out of there so fast. Like, what was that? Explain that one to me. I don't know. How, how old were you when that happened? I was probably like five or six because we were playing hide and seek in my house and I was hiding in the closet. And um, at the time, cause it's like a, it's got like shelves in it now, but at the time it had jackets in it. And I was like, okay, maybe one of the jacket sleeves like fell over my shoulder or something. But it's like, what, what kind of jacket sleeve would have pressed down like a hand and let me feel all of the, every single finger, you know? Um, so many things have happened in this house. I mean, like, and every member of my family has heard something or seen something, sometimes multiple times, um, including my sister's friends who came here to investigate if the house was haunted. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, I'm pretty sure there's something going on here. Um, but it's like you can't really... There's no way to prove it. There's no way to gather evidence. And this, I kind of bring this up in now entering Adamsville. There's literally no way that I can think of that anybody can ever prove that that ghosts exist, right? Because if you get anything, if you catch, record any video, any audio, anything like that, people can just say, ah, oh, that's, that's doctored. Like, that's not real. Um, and you can experience it for yourself, but you can't convince anybody else that it actually happened so it's it's one of those things that it's like i believe in it but if nobody else if other people don't whatever you know i guess that's the way it has to be you're not uh, an evangelical uh person for the ghost the spirit world coming to us with a message (laughs) and are you uh, are you broadcasting from the haunted house right now 
I am. I am. I am in the room. I don't think this room has had anything. See, I'm going to say this, and then tonight something. This is this is the room I sleep in. So I'm going to say this, and then tonight something's going to happen. We haven't had anything happen for a few years because, um, so my sister's older than me, and one night she came home from college, and like her room was one that like, uh, we've heard people running around in it like we'd be downstairs and you could hear footsteps like running in circles in that room to the point where like there's a it's a chandelier it's not it's like an old chandelier that hangs in the room below it and the chandelier would start swaying as if somebody was running upstairs and there's nobody up there um and like she used to she used to have a little like um doorbell on that door so people could hit it before they came in and it would go off in the middle of the night, which is like, okay, it could be just bad wiring or something. Um, and just, just all kinds of stuff in that room. And so one night she came home from college and she was like, look, if you could all just chill out while I'm home, you can have it back when I'm gone. Just, you know, don't do anything while I'm here. Uh, and we have not heard a thing in this house since then. Like How any- long ago was that? That was probably like, ooh, see, now I'm going to date my sister. Um, I think that was over 10 years ago. It was probably, yeah, it was at least over 10 years ago. So, although, that's a lie, because something did happen to me when I came home from college one weekend in that room. So, this is a really creepy story. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Sweet. So, <laughs> so and real uh, quick, uh, esteemed audience. If you're just listening, this might be an episode you want to watch on YouTube because this is a paranormal activity movie right now. Everybody's going to be watching just behind you to see what activity might be occurring. Oh, my God. Things might start moving. Like, you don't know. Somebody could walk behind me and I won't notice because I'm not looking at my little picture up there. So um, I I came home. It was one weekend. Um, I was back in that room. Uh, It was like 1130 at night because it was when I could still stay up late. Um, and I was sitting there like writing, I was on Twitter, I was doing whatever. Um, and like my, my forehead was kind of itching. My temple was kind of itching, but I was like, whatever, scratch it. I went up to go to the bathroom again, middle of the night, um, was washing my hands in the sink. And I looked up in the mirror and I had a blood trail. It was not even a joke from my temple all the way down my face, down my neck. And then it stopped and beaded like right below my collarbone. And I was so freaked out because there was no, there was nothing on my temple. There was no cut. There was no even like rash or anything. There was nothing farther up that could have dripped. I went back to the room and checked the ceiling to see if anything could have dripped on me. Nothing. And it was dried. It was dried blood. And so I was like, okay, that was on me for a long time. I didn't feel it run down my face. I don't have any kind of wound and there's nothing dripping on me from the ceiling. Where did this come from? And I was so freaked out that I washed it off immediately. And now I wish I had gotten a picture of it, but it was like, I don't know what's happening right now. And then I went back, I went back in the room and I was like, what was that? Okay. And then I just went to bed because I was freaked out. And normally I don't get, like, I watch horror movies all the time. I, you know, I love being in graveyards. I love nighttime and everything. I don't normally get freaked out, and that did it for me. So, 
Dude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wouldn't that <Right>? freak out? <laughs> yeah. I had more questions for you about writing and being an author. No, this is what the show is about now. We're talking <laughs> ghosts. This is what I love doing. I love derailing everything with ghosts. Like, <laughs> I was at a, I was at Chapter One Con uh, earlier in the summer. And uh, I did my I did my presentation. I was the keynote speaker. Did my presentation. Took questions from the audience. And then when they ran out of questions, we still had a little bit of time left. So I was like, okay, guys, I'm going to tell you about these episodes of Ghost Adventures I've been watching. And then I just talked about ghosts. And we talked about ghosts for like the last 10, 15 minutes of the my session. And it was like the best time. So I love derailing things with ghosts. It's awesome. It's great. You're not derailing anything. This is elevated beyond my wildest dreams. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I assume these experiences have had to have changed your mindset lifelong i i uh full disclosure uh never seen a ghost uh i saw my cousin in a sheet she would hide in my closet with my sister uh and they would come out and they, they were dark because we were we were five six uh and they told me to go get them some ice from the kitchen and don't say anything to grandma they killed my brother oh so, my Whoa. god <laughs> yeah that's, that's a lot for a five-year-old okay so i i didn't say anything i'm like was i think it's probably my cousin but that's just what a ghost that would kill my brother would want me to think. Right. <laughs> so right. I got to get the ice. Uh, now, a true story. She now runs uh, the Indiana, well, she's going to kill me. I believe it's the Indiana Haunted Barn uh, oh, really? in Jamestown every year. Awesome. It uh, wins awards every year. Uh, it's one of the most profitable spook houses in all of Indiana. We look forward to it. Uh-huh. Uh, she's 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 moderately wealthy uh, doing these 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 uh, professional uh, uh, spook houses. So she practiced on me, and I was uh, I tell her that that's part of where the horror novels must come from is that that trauma she inflicted when she was uh, uh, yeah. getting her uh, chops for them. But my wife, uh, she I don't know I assume she wants me to make this story public. Um, she and her family had uh, had experiences with a ghost that would play the piano in their basement amazing that's so great that's so creepy i love that oh and it was God. one of those things where the first time she told me i was like yes dear i i believe that you believe that <laughs> and then uh but the stories never deviated the whole family's confirmed that i'm like all right well i i think you had yourself a ghost <laughs> yeah like i think that actually happened okay yeah um no, like I, I for sure think it was like something in childhood that because like when I was little, I remember being a scared of everything, b having just tons of nightmares all the time, which is like little kids, uh, as I have come to understand it, have more nightmares than adults do generally, um, just because their brains are developing and everything's kind of, you know, nuts in there, um, but like. <laughs> I I was scared of of everything. I was scared of like ants. I was scared of weird knots on trees. I was scared of the telephone ringing. I was scared of clowns. Obviously, everybody should be scared of clowns. Um, sorry, clowns. Um, and like I was, and then I had these nightmares that were just like real weird and recurring. And like sometimes I think like that must have messed me up somehow because I love horror movies now. Like I just love, and I used to be scared of like, I mean, even just the Adams family. Like I remember watching like Adams family values, I think where, um, uh, 
thing is is just crawling around on the floors on the roller skate at the beginning of the movie that part alone i could not watch it because i was so scared of a dismembered hand um and now it's like god i love the adams family i love everything about the adams family not really horror but still um i love like horror jason horror jason right um i i love the aesthetic the horror aesthetic um i'm not big on like gore or anything like that so like i don't like the saw movies or anything but i love ghost stories i love um like psychological horror um like one of my favorite movies of all time is the japanese version of the grudge oh sure so good so good um, anything that can give me the chills. So, like, I love watching. I like watching ghost hunting shows. Um, not like I don't believe that they're real because um, I'm I'm sure you know at least ninety percent of the stuff that they do get on those shows is made up or whatever. You know, it's fine. I, it doesn't really bother me how much is made up and how much isn't. I like it because. I can get lost in it and kind of be like, ooh, what if that is real? That's spooky. Like, this is creepy. Just, just the, it's the, that fear of the unknown. And like, there's something there that you can't see and you can only like kind of hear it or interact with it. So it's there, but you can't see it. You don't quite know what it is. You don't know what it wants really. And maybe you know a little bit about what it wants. Maybe, you know, like, it's unhappy. Maybe you know that it's angry. Um, maybe you know that it is looking for a lost child or something. Maybe you know that it is a child. And it's just, that's so creepy to me of like inhabiting a space with a thing that you know it's there, but you don't know what it wants or what it is. Um, and that I just, I love it so much. And it, it just, it grips me in a way that a lot of other ideas and things don't. Um, yeah, I just, oh, I love it so much now. So do you feel like about ghosts, like the way some people feel about Star Wars, or the way I feel about Batman, that's just your jam? <laughs> it's, it's my jam. It is entirely my jam. Um, I, like, yeah, actually, I never thought about it that way. But yeah, just in general as a concept, like, ghosts are my, like, oh, I could talk about it forever forever one of my favorite books i read recently actually was um recently in the past like five years uh it's a non-fiction book um that actually helped me write adamsville it's a non-fiction book it's called ghostland uh an american history in haunted places and i actually have it on my bookshelf over there but um it's basically it's about oh and it's by colin dickey um, and basically it's about, he goes around to all these places in America and he gives you, they're like famous haunted places. And he gives you their, the ghost story that comes from that place. And then he gives you the, um, true story of the place, like what, how it actually came to be, what actually happened there. Um, and basically what he tries to do by telling both of these stories is give the reader a sense of why we tell ghost stories and what the ghost stories that we tell say about us, our culture and our, like the human brain and like how our, how, how our brain works, what we think about our deepest fears, what we're trying to repress. Um, 
and it's just it's just a really interesting book and really well written. Um, and that was part of the um, inspiration for Adamsville as it is now because um, so Zora is the main character. She's the one hunting demons and trying to save ghosts and stuff. And her cousin Artemis is kind of like the town ghost historian. And so she's the ghost hunter who tries to go around and like, she's trying to learn the true stories behind all of these ghosts because she knows that, you know, a lot of these ghost stories that we tell the people who are, were in them are real people. They existed at one point and they had real stories. And it's important not to just, um, you know, uh, tell these stories as if they're just entertainment like there were real people behind this and if we understand who they were and what happened to them we can um better understand like ourselves and our town and you know have more um empathy for them and their families and you know everything that's happened and come before us Gotcha. You got us uh, right back on track, I suppose. We're talking about... <laughs> I know. I, 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 Adamsville, available uh, October 1st. Make sure you get uh, your copy. Good, Adamsville. <laughs> come, come to the book release party and talk to me about ghosts, please. I will talk about it all day. That's going to be at uh, Kids Inc. right here in Indianapolis. So that, Yeah, so there's two, actually. There's one on the 1st is going to be at Barnes & Noble in Greenwood at 7 p.m., um, and then there's another one that's going to be at Kids Inc. on the ooh, 17th um, at 6.30, I believe. Um, so I'm actually doing two. So if you can't come to the one on the first, you can come to the one. Yes, on the 17th at 6.30 at Kids Inc. Um, so there's two chances to see yeah. me. Kids Inc., special shout out to... I never want to say the best bookstore. What kind of author suicide would that be? But one of my favorite uh, <laughs> bookstores in Indianapolis is, is Kids Inc. Uh, they always throw such a nice party. Um, it's, a, it's a good crowd. I, uh, I've lost track of how many uh, launch parties I've gone to there, but all the best ones. <laughs> I, I have actually, this will, this will be my first time going there, so I'm very excited. Oh, you're in they're... for a treat, my friend. No, I'm, I'm so excited. So uh, Miss Mullen puts on a heck of a show. Oh yes! Oh man, I'm 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 ready for that. And occasionally, not always, but sometimes Mike Mullen comes by and busts a brick with his bare hands. So, oh, <laughs> fingers crossed. I saw I saw the rest of his um his like presentation that he does for schools uh, at a Barnes and Noble one time, but he didn't have his brick with him. Wow. So maybe I should make a special request to be like, can Mike bring the brick? I've seen him do it five or six times, and like the first couple times, it was impressive. But then I started rooting for the brick not to break because that's <laughs> infinitely more entertaining for me. That he right. just smacks his hand, and then he has to look around embarrassed. Then one more time, yeah. <laughs> like ah, oh, you weakened it the first time. It doesn't mean anything now. <laughs> yeah, it's a great ploy. It made me wish that I could break bricks because then he takes the two pieces and he signs them both and he gives them out to two kids in the oh, audience. That's, that's so good. That's thinking, dude. That Mike Mullen, he's a smart guy. <laughs> well, here's my promise to esteemed audience. There is no way we're going the rest of this conversation without more ghost talk. But we're going to talk a little bit more book, and then we'll get back to it. Yes. Uh, so let's start with, um, oh, what to talk about with this book. Well, let's talk about, you and I were on a, on a panel once upon a time. Um, and we were both asked, why is Indiana a great place to write about? 
Uh, and of course, we we said because we're at an Indiana conference, and y'all want to hear that it is. <laughs> but yeah. but um, uh, we also we both agreed that Indiana is a great place for horror stories. So yeah. why is that, and why have you chosen to set your horror story in Indiana? I first of all, I think all horror stories should take place in Indiana. Um, I it's I've been wondering about this because. I mean, obviously, I've lived here my whole life, and I, for most of my life, I was terrified of everything. Um, I think it's because it has that kind of, like, Stephen King, like, rural slash suburban main feel when he gets into, like, you know, Salem's Lot and all that stuff where it's just, you have all these small towns um, that can be pretty sleepy, and people don't think about it a lot. Uh, people outside of Indiana don't tend to think about Indiana very often. Um, and so it, it's like... Whereas I just can't stop thinking about Illinois. <laughs> Sorry. I know, right? <laughs> like, uh, actually, I do think about Illinois a lot because I heard once that they that people from Illinois... Sorry, anybody from Illinois who believes this isn't true, but I heard that people from Illinois use the term Hoosier as an insult. And I was like, well... Done with you, Illinois. <laughs> All right. Um, Illinois has been good to me. I was able to drive over and visit the set both of Man of Steel and Batman Begins. So, All right, Illinois. Okay, Illinois. All right. That's not too bad. Pretty cool. Um, I, I think, for me, Indiana is a great setting for horror stories because... We have the combination, there, I think it's the utility of it. Like, we have the combination of a city, but also a lot of rural, like, farmland. Um, we have these wide open spaces where it's still a little bit, it's a little bit country. But in a lot of places, people like to think that we are cultured and great. And it's like, mm, you know, we're not Southern, but, mm. um. Well, that's one of the things I like about it is because I get away with passing myself off as cultured because you don't know Indiana folk. No. <laughs> could be. You don't know. Yeah, whatever. Um, it, it's like, okay, so um, at, the, uh, at the Indiana Authors Award, I gave a speech about liminal spaces um, and how Indiana feels like a liminal space to me. So a liminal space, for anybody who doesn't know, is a space where it's like between worlds. So basically it's like, it's, it's a space that you should only pass through and never stay in for a long period of time. So for example, um, like airports are liminal spaces. So that's why it can feel very strange to spend uh, a large amount of time in an airport because it's not a space that you're supposed to stay in. It's why it can feel, it's that feeling that you get when you're like, you're in your high school after hours and nobody's around and you're like, oh, this is not a place I'm supposed to be at this time of day. And there's no one here. And this feels very strange. That's a liminal space. And so for me, Indiana is the whole state feels like a liminal space. It's like this place that it's like people, I, I never thought of it as people staying here. It's like, you could be born here and then you leave, or you might, you're born somewhere else and you come here for a little while and then you leave you pass through because, you know, we're the crossroads of America. Um, but it, it has that weird quality of, of seeming like this place where you can suddenly be alone in the middle of nowhere 
and there's just cornfields all around you and you know that there's something out there like you know that there are people around but you can't see them and you don't know where they are and you're like I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be here and so it can just give you that real creeped out feeling um, of just being in the wrong place at the wrong time um, and we have a lot of great like rundown farmhouses and again cornfields uh, woods just all kinds of great great stuff you can hear whispers through the corn beware mm -hmm. his righteous judgment oh no <laughs> I, I don't know why do you why do you think it's great for writing horror well now that that's the smartest answer i ever heard a liminal space oh. oh my god that's going to my next indiana horror story i'll thank you in the back but i'm totally passing that off as my original thought that's great <laughs> please do have that no, I agree. Uh, there is um, just a wealth of creepy uh, things and, and, and haunted people. Mm -hmm. um, good people. I like I like yeah. Indiana people. We're, we're salt of the earth. Uh, Vonnegut called us uh, freshwater people, which yeah. I like the sound of that. That's nice. Yeah. Freshwater nice. people. Yeah. Um, and very funny uh, and surprisingly progressive. You know, you see this the state, not to get into politics, but you see us light up bright red. Uh, and you think, well, that must be us. It's, we know those people. They're here. They're here. And, and yeah, okay, we, we at one point we were the head of the Ku Klux Klan. But there are also all kinds of great people here. Right, right. <laughs> oh, God, we're, that's not going to. Oh, we're sorry. We apologize. That's not great. But, yeah, there, there are a lot of people. And I like he said, like, there are haunted people here. Good people, but haunted people. And I think that was another thing with, like, Adamsville was just like, you know, living here my whole life. It's like you see these people and like you sometimes you get raised this way where it's kind of like you, everybody has their issues. Right. And it's you're kind of raised in this way to not talk about things. And so you can know that somebody is a certain way or they have a certain personality, but you don't necessarily know why. Like, you don't know their backstory. You know there's something there. Um, and so it, it's it's just kind of... Sometimes you can see these people that you're like, I, I know who you are as a person, but I don't really understand you. And in that way, they can kind of feel like ghosts, too. It's like, I know you're here, but I don't know what you want. Um, and that's... Or what you want or what you've been through or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, there's so many, so many opportunities here. I think it's helped. It helps that it, it feels relatively unplumbed in terms of horror stories. Um, I oh, mean, now we have like, that around my friend. Turning that around. <laughs> I was going to say now we have like stranger things and stuff. Stranger things weirdly doesn't feel like an Indiana. It, it kind of does. Maybe it's because it's set in the eighties and I was not alive in the eighties, but like it, it, it feels like it could be any, like, you know, Midwestern setting to me. Like, it's not Indiana-specific, um, which I is like fine. Stranger Things. Just, I, just I, know I that like... esteemed audience before I say what I'm about to say. Because <laughs> um, I, I, I do like the show. Yeah. Uh, but it's like a non-Hoosiers idea of what Indiana is. You don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, and it's also what a person that, that um, 
remembers the 80s and has read a lot of books about the 80s it's their idea of 80s because i i was uh, i was alive albeit very uh, young uh during the 80s uh, and like, you know, you watch the show and they've all got their Ghostbuster costumes and everybody's got the cars that are specific to like that year or two years before. Like, yeah. get out of here. People didn't have that kind of money in the 80s. Right. They had cars that were 10, 20 years old. Yeah, they had, they had cars from the, the 60s. 70s. They're still right. walking around in bell bottoms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like nobody, it's like, and I feel like that might be like a, you know, did you, were these people from like LA or New York who made this who were like on the coasts? And so were things like, you know, go through faster because it's like you're in indiana buddy like that does not happen here um but yeah exactly it just changed our time zones like what like five seven years ago somewhere in there oh my god yeah we went to eastern time we were one point you could i remember the west wing uh made a joke about it it was a, a whole episode yeah, was about when you go to indiana you go through three or four different time zones i and was so... laughing so hard during that episode that was one of my favorite episodes of that show <laughs> it trolled us and we had it coming like yeah i so loved true. it oh my god um but yeah and like um Oh, what was I just going to say? Um, so I, when I think of Stranger Things, it's like, uh, like a, I, I do enjoy that show, but it doesn't feel like an Indiana show. It feels just like a Midwestern show. But then I think of something like Parks and Rec, and I'm like, that is Indiana to a T. Like, God, that feels like Indiana. I love that show so much, partly because it is Indiana. I don't know who they had working on that show. I don't know who they consulted, if they consulted anybody, but that is like, like the Pawnee Eagleton like conflict. Maybe it's because I'm a South Sider, but I'm like, man, Eagleton is the North side. Like there are I, two towns anywhere are in conflict and I'm, I'm a bad person because I'm now uh, working in the school system that was against Lebanon. I'm not, I'm not gonna say what. I don't want to oh, break yeah. that rivalry, but I, I have yeah. become a turncoat in my old age. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like that's like me because I like uh, we had a we had a you know conflict with another high school, and it's like man, if I ever end up having to to work for them or anything, it's like I, I will have betrayed everything I stood for. So yeah, it's 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 that kind of of difference. Um, so uh, I don't remember where this started, but anytime I can write an Indiana story, I do it. And anytime I can write an Indiana story and actually make it feel like Indiana, I do it. So like, and I feel like they've gotten progressively more Indiana as I've gone on because I feel like made you up. It was set in Indiana, but it wasn't like a whole lot about the setting. Eliza was a little bit more, and then now entering Adamsville is like. This is my ode to Indiana and its creepiness and its people and all the things I love about it. There's a line in Adamsville uh, where I say that the town, like Zora says something about the town being like Connor Prairie for the afterlife. Um, And (laughs) the copy editors were like, should you keep this in there? Because we didn't know what this was. We had to look it up to see that it was a living history museum. Are your readers going to know what this is? Like, should you just say, like, Living History Museum for the Afterlife or something? And I was like, no, it's an Indiana book. We're saying Connor Prairie. Like, people from Indiana will get it and they'll love it. And people who aren't from Indiana can look it up or get it from context clues. But I also featured Connor Prairie in two of my stories without blinking nice. an eye. Like, if you don't know it, find out. It's awesome. Find out. It's great. <laughs> it's amazing. They won't break character for anything. 
Oh, it's great. It's like the, uh, the what the English the guards of the London, uh, yeah. where they stand there and you can yell in their face and they don't do anything. Mm-hmm. You can wave your cell phone in the face of the counter oh performers. They do <laughs> no. not break character. They are. I they got are. a demon. Nope, nothing. Nope. <laughs> Better exercise that. Let's call the priest. Yeah, like I also love that Indiana is so very, very religious. You know, we're, we're in the Bible Belt, uh, and there are whole stretches of it that you know we, we've got we've got plenty of heathens. Don't don't worry about that, non-hoochers. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you're writing a horror story, something that I complain about in other horror stories is when they either leave out or minimize the religion. It's like, dude, you're you're talking about death. Right. If that happened here, for mm-hmm. sure somebody's going to try and make this a parable, and that's why you have to do what I say. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Like, um, and like some that was something that was another thing in Adamsville that I was trying to like because I have the um the pastor of the church is in there and they go like they see the they pass the church, they see the church, they go to the graveyard. They don't really I wanted to bring up religion as more of a point in there. And unfortunately there wasn't room in the story, and I was kind of bummed about it because I was like, there's a lot to think about here in terms of like because because Zora can see ghosts, because she basically, you know, the fire starters are basically demons, um, and she's not a particularly religious person, and nobody in her family is, is it really, and, and the fact that mom is missing, and, you know, she's dealing with, like, is her mom still alive, is she not, you know, there's so much there to think about in terms of, like, how does Zora um, conceptualize religion, how does she work through these things does religion factor into it at all um has she ever thought about like i thought about putting a scene in there where she like goes to the church and is considering like you know praying or just talking to the pastor about something and you know she would probably end up getting angry at some point and storming out as she does but um it it was something that i thought about putting in there and just didn't there just wasn't space for it unfortunately but i i yeah, it's entirely something that I think is, you know, important to, especially somewhere like when you're set in Indiana, because it is such a big thing. Um, even for a character who's not religious, you know, when you're dealing with these paranormal elements and death and all this stuff, it's like, you know, even even your your less religious people are going to consider it. Well, and in Indiana, I mean, the ghost or entity could come to life and say, this is Buddha. For sure, I'm Buddha doing a magic thing. In Indiana, people be like, I'm pretty sure it's Jesus. Pretty sure it's Jesus. <laughs> this is Jesus, actually. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and now exactly. we've offended all our fellow Hoosiers. Good times. Oops. All right. <laughs> friends. So um, well, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Zora, because this is She's a wonderful character, um, and um, a little, little bit like uh, a, a female version of Marty McFly, and just that nobody calls her chicken. She's always so angry. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and right. I thought about her a little bit like that because I was also thinking of Frighteners. Uh, so I definitely had her in that Michael J. Fox type box. <laughs> oh my god, you were thinking of the Frighteners? Oh, absolutely. I, I love that movie. So okay, I saw. We're going to talk about the Frighteners for a second. Absolutely. Everybody should watch the Frighteners if you've never seen it. Um, Michael J. Fox is a had like a near death experience. He can see ghosts, and there's an evil ghost serial killer. It's amazing. Watch it. Um, I saw the Frighteners. I only saw part of it at first, and I was like, "What is this?" It was like one of those movies that came out of nowhere. I'd never heard of it before. 
I didn't know anything about it. I caught it like halfway through and I was like mesmerized by it. I'm probably going to go buy it after we're done talking here. You already um, own it? No. And <laughs> Get just, on it. But made me think about it. Because um, I forgot. But like, it was one of those things. It was like the movie Gross Point Blank, where I saw it in the middle and I was like, what is this? This movie's amazing. And then like, I didn't, I didn't see the title of it at the time. And like, it was, it was before like, I want to say it was before or around the time that like IMDb kind of got big. So I didn't really know where to look for it or anything. And I, I just kind of forgot about it. And then I saw it again on TV and I was like, I saw it on the TV listing and it was like the Frighteners and Michael J. Fox. And I was like, oh, I wonder if this is like that one movie where he had all the ghost friends and everything. And I was, I was like, oh, this is it. Oh, my God. And so <laughs> many story ideas like spawned off of that. And like a bunch of them I haven't used or anything, but um, that is definitely like one of those formative movies where I watched it. And I was just like, this is amazing. This is one of my favorite things. But yes, you were saying that that it has kind of that Frighteners vibe to it. It does, because it's, I mean, it's not, it's not all fun and games. Um, it's not. There's, there's some serious stuff throughout. But it is a very fun in tone and in spirit. And come on, we're chasing ghosts. We're having a good time. <laughs> right. a good time. But, uh, yeah, in terms of Zora. Um, she, well, something she did... I, I noticed about her that I, I really wanted to ask you about, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to facetiously ask this question, uh, yeah. because I know there's some plot reasons for it, but um, her mother uh, is, is gone and was hated by the town, considered a witch um, prior to that. Uh, her dad uh, was liked by the town and, until slight spoiler. Uh, he, you know, he was found out to have suckered them all in a Ponzi scheme. Uh, and then uh, she and her sister are in a trailer. Their situation is kind of desperate. And I'm, I'm reading this. I'm going, Jesse, what are you? She's what? She's 18. Mm -hmm. She's already got plenty of trouble with the ability to see ghosts. Her plate is full. <laughs> Why this additional conflict piled on her? And I think there's an answer, but I want to ask the question. <laughs> well, so part of it is it just kind of rolled into that over time. It was like, because originally, originally there was nothing paranormal in the story. She was just a girl who had some troubles and was, was just, you know, um, was, was part of the lower social class in town, you know, lived in a trailer. Um, her family was fine. They were doing their thing. Um, people didn't really like them that much. Um, and then, and she originally did have a penchant for starting fires because of her anger and, and different issues. Then it became, okay, there are other things starting fires. She, people think she starts fires. She's actually trying to stop it. Um, but all of these problems are kind of, I mean, really, when I, when I think about it, it's kind of like, you know, the people who have, well, okay, so for, it, it's funny, because I actually don't necessarily see her, the situation of like her and her sister living in the trailer and being, you know, of a lower socioeconomic status is necessarily like, it's not, I mean, it's not great for them, but it's not necessarily like a, a, a conflict that they're trying to work past. They have their jobs, they know the deal, they know how their lives work. Um, they've kind of, they're like, this is, this is how we live. Um, I wanted her family to be kind of, 
to be very loving and and whole, but also broken up. So like, I wanted her parents to be out of the picture because I wanted her to be at this um, this point where she's she's above water, but she doesn't have her mom, who was the one who taught her how to do all these things and was really like her support person because her mom understood what she was going through. So I didn't want her mom to be around and I didn't want her dad to be around for part of the book. And then when he comes back, you know, she has this kind of sore spot with him for what he did. Um, because she really needed to have this feeling of like, she, her, the, her lowest point is when she feels like she has, um, nothing and no one to help her. And, um, it's, it's this realization of like, no, you do have people who are around, like your family is still here. They do still care about you. You have your friends, you know, um, you're not alone, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, of course, the ghosts and the the fire starters are, those are the fun part of it. Those are the, um, you know, she, she gets to have this, this is the issue that she's trying to put off and not think about. Because she has these other things in her life that are like, I got, I got stuff to do, like, I, I don't want to think about these things. And then, of course, the beginning of the story forces her to, you know, come back to this and say, okay now somebody has died, people are going to get hurt, I'm the only one who can do something, I have to do something. Um, even though I don't want to, even though this is the worst, even though I have so many other problems going on right now. Um, and really, it's that um, catalyst of the fire starter coming back and killing somebody that turns all of those other parts of her life into, like, uh, conflicts. Because... The fire shredder comes back. Well, now everybody thinks she's, you know, committed another arson. And so, and then they think that because of her family. So then her family gets the spotlight turned on it again. Um, you know, she has, she has to deal with her aunt. She has to deal with technically the cops. She has to deal with all these other things that were fine. Not great, but fine up until this happened. Um, she has to, you know, all these things about her mom resurface. Um, about what happened to her and where she went. And um, and you took two of her fingers because you just figured she didn't have enough challenges. <laughs> so the fingers, the fingers was, uh, so before, so, okay, in a draft before this, Zora was the one starting fires. Actually, she doesn't now, but she was actually the one starting fires and there were no ghosts. Before that, um, she was, she was building and setting off pipe bombs. Um, which actually, and her fingers getting cut off was a, a real life story. I knew somebody who built a pipe bomb and got to his fingers cut off because it exploded on him. Um, and that was always like, wow, that is, it was something that you did yourself that caused that to happen. And so that feeling of like, how would, how would a person react to that of like, I did something stupid and I lost two of my fingers because of it. It's not a mortal injury. It's not, you know, um, it's not going to kill you. And you, you can function perfectly well without two fingers. But it is that kind of like, you have to see that every day. You have to know that that happened because you were doing something unwise. Um, Every time you interact with somebody, they're, sooner or later their eyes are going to drift down a little bit to your hand. And they're like, hey, what's up with your fingers? And you're like, don't look at it. Like, 
don't look at it. Don't talk to me about it. I don't even think about it. So Zora wears gloves because she wants to hide it as much as possible that she's missing two fingers, which of course they can't afford good prosthetics. So they stick out anyway, whenever, no matter what she does. Um, and the other thing I liked about that was, um, so she lost these two fingers on her right hand and these two fingers are your gripping fingers. So most of your grip strength comes from those two. Um, for the folks so, not watching for uh, Ghost, which two fingers? Oh, sorry. They're my, <laughs> I forgot. They're the uh, pinky and ring finger um, are your, your gripping fingers. And so she lost her pinky and her ring finger on her right hand. And somebody's going to read the book and be like, it was her left hand. I'm pretty sure it's her right hand. Um, she, she lost those two fingers. And so, like, you know, anytime she's trying to wield her axe or anything, she has to have both hands on it because only one hand can really grip the axe at all. Um, so I liked the idea of, um, you know, she's lost two of her fingers kind of the way she lost both of her parents in that she doesn't have that hold on her life anymore. <laughs> Holds. Uh, <laughs> um, but she doesn't have that hold on her life anymore. And so she is, she's still functional. She can still do things. But she doesn't feel as sure of herself. She doesn't have that. Um, she doesn't have the, uh, the 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 functionality she did before. Um, and she gets along with it as best she can. But you know, and it, you still kind of get the um, that feeling of I did something stupid and I was punished for it because um, this isn't really a spoiler. The way she lost her fingers was after her mom left. She got very angry and she went out. Um, without Artemis, without her cousin, and started hunting fire starters alone. And one of them caught her um, in a field and basically tore off her fingers um, because she didn't have any backup. Um, and she managed to get rid of it, but ever since, uh, that was the incident that she lost her fingers, and then that was why everybody thought she started fires, because she was found there around a fire. Um, so now she you know, wears these gloves to kind of hide this shame from herself that she did something like that um and and let her anger get away from her so in the beginning of the book you see her really trying hard to you know control her anger and not let it get the best of her um uh and as we see sometimes that is not necessarily while it is a good thing to try to control your anger sometimes you need to get angry so yeah that's kind of the, the fingers, I knew as soon as, like, even as the story changed, I knew that the fingers had to stay. Because um, it was just, it, by that point, it was just such a part of her character. Um, that she was, this was a thing about her that she was kind of ashamed of it, trying to hide it. But she was still functional, you know, she didn't, she, she wasn't cool with people pointing it out. She was like, you know, hey, stay out of my business. Um it was it was this kind of private thing to her um, and the way she like thinks about her her hand and her fingers throughout the book. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of craftsmanship, craftswomanship, craft craftship craft. uh, on, on display. Yeah. Craft. Um, it's not my fault. Our language was made by sex. I, uh, <laughs> gosh darn uh, 
<laughs> but uh, the the cumulative effect of that because you know you you've got a character who uh, we see as you mentioned reluctant at the beginning, but then she's even before she's on a quest to save the world or at least her partner of it. Um, she's saving the cat. She's doing just enough good things along the way that we know that however angry she gets, she's still our hero. We can root for her. Right. Um, but the cumulative effect of all that conflict, sometimes some novels it, it collapses under it because it, it doesn't make sense. But in this case, because there is room for it all and it is all relevant as you go without spoiling, mm-hmm. um, the cumulative effect is you really feel for Zora and she's more, it's, it's, it's an odd thing to me that I know is true because I've experienced it in other people's books that the more you hurt a character, the, <laughs> the more mm-hmm. you torture them, just the more compelling they are and the more unputdownable the book is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's funny, like, I agree, like, there are some books where just the more things that get thrown in, the harder it is to, it it just kind of gets disjointed and goes all over the place. Um, The orphan has cancer now. Ah, It's like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, like, why, though? Um, And it is definitely that thing of, like, if you're going to put more conflict in a story, it all has to go back to the character's internal struggle. Like every single thing has to go back to that and what it means to them and building them as a character. Um, it was funny because I, I, I wonder if, if people will say the same thing about Adamsville that, that I've heard some people say about made you up, which was, I saw a review one time about made you up where somebody said, um, and I don't normally go look at reviews. So it was like chance that I saw this one, but they said, uh, there was so much happening in this book that I thought I would hate it, but I didn't. Like, basically it was that idea of like, it should have collapsed under itself, but it didn't. And I think it's it's that thing of like, as long as it all relates to what the main character is going through and it's all tied together and it all, the reader can understand why that's in there. Um, it, it'll, you can just, you can thread it together and sometimes you have to be really careful, but you can thread it all together in a way that it is cohesive and understandable and, um, doesn't doesn't slow down the pacing or anything like that um and that was definitely what i tried to do here there used to be a lot more plot threads in it and then we actually simplified it down okay (laughs) i believe well there used to be there used to be three points of view it used to be zora artemis and And so they each had their own like arc was going on Thank God that didn't happen because that was a bloated mess. That was a that was a book that was going to collapse under the weight of its own plot threads. I, I love uh, reviews. I, I do read my reviews. I, I admire people with the restraint who don't. I do. Uh, <laughs> you leave a review sooner or later, I'll probably see it. Um, but I remember there was one review that started off with uh, this story, Pizza Delivery, available now, also set in Indiana, uh, in a cornfield. Um <laughs> The, it started with this story was only a buck, so I expected it to suck. But it was actually really good. Yeah. I'm like, why did you waste your dollar and your time if you went okay. in with the expectation of suckage? You just thought it was going to be bad, yeah. But all right. I'm okay. glad I turned you around, but come on, man. <laughs> make, make better investments with your time and your money. <laughs> like, man, I appreciate you buying the book, but like, bro. Yeah. There's so many yeah, good books out there. Reading. If you're not into it, I'm not offended. Go read. I love that. Like when it's like I expected to hate this, but it was actually really good. And it's like, oh, thank you. All right. Well, I'm oh. not happy because I'm a person that likes to torture myself, and I'm telling you, I was not sad that night. Oh well. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but I wanted to to ask you more uh, about everything, uh, but more specifically uh, about Zora. 
uh, and um, her relationship um, uh, with Artemis, uh, because they're not, you know, everybody goes to the trope that, oh, it's Holmes and Watson, but this time they're girls in Indiana. It's not that. Right. Uh, but they are um, a detective duo. Uh, one's good with the book learning. One's good with the axe. <laughs> one's got too much anger. One's got not enough confidence. Um, so what are, what's the secret to making a compelling dual protagonist set like that? Uh, for for a story like this, um, so I think it was like I know with Zora and Artemis, one of the things that absolutely had to be there was they weren't quite going to like each other at first, but they were going to understand at least a little bit where each other was coming from. Um, so they don't they don't like each other, but they don't hate each other. Um, and as the book goes on, they evolve, of course, and they they really come to kind of be best friends um, because it's so it's set up throughout the story that they had been friends when they were younger because their mothers were sisters. So they're cousins and um, they had hung out a lot when they were younger. And then there was a, a, a rift um, that kind of pulled them apart. Um, and they are on different ends of the spectrum, like Artemis's family is rich. Zora's is not. Um and they well, have Indiana rich, <laughs> Indiana rich. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, they live on the, the nice big Victorian house on the lake. Um, but, uh, and so they have these differences between them. And I think it's important too, that at least one member of the pair is eager to, to put the pair together. Um, which obviously is not necessary for like a duo in a book. But I think in this case, it was important because Artemis, Artemis is the one who really believes in this, this hunting work that they were doing. Um, and she, she can't see ghosts. She can feel them, but she can't see them. Um, and she, she doesn't really, she can't do any like fighting or anything. So she's running around trying to like, from the first scene, like trying to convince Zora to get back into it and be like, you know, we have to do this. We have to, you know, get back into hunting. Um, and Zora's like, nope, I'm done. I'm out. I don't want to talk to you. You're the worst. I hate you. Um, and then, what of course, this, Zora is. <laughs> she's, she's, I love her so much. She's great. Um, uh, and, and like this conflict comes up and. Zora realizes, you know, she's like, okay, I have to take care of this. And the only person that she knows who is willing to help her at all is Artemis. Um, so they're kind of, it's, it's partly a, um, one person of the pair is, you know, eager to, to put this together. Part of it is there is a conflict that brings them together to the point where they have to, um, they have to join up um, and they each need their own kind of um, motivation for what they're doing and why they're doing this. So for Zora, it's, you know, I'm not going to go hunting alone again. Cause I see what, what that got me. Um, and she needs someone who's on her side. Um, and uh, she knows that she can influence Artemis to help her. Um, and for Artemis, it's, um, you know, she wants to get back into, like, she wants to help Zora take down this fire starter because she wants to help protect the town. Um, she wants to get rid of this ghost hunting TV show that has come to town that she does not like. 
Um, and she, that, I think that's the two main things. I think that's the two main things there. Um, but they, they both have their own separate motivations for joining forces. And then throughout the course of the story, them spending this time together, they realize like, oh, okay, we, we do have a lot in common. We do like each other. Let's hang out more. Like, um, we understand each other. We know where we're coming from. Um, and, and so it, it was a lot of that. It was, I knew I wanted a friendship to be at the center of the story, but I knew that they weren't going to start as friends. Um, and I knew that like Artemis was really going to be the, the Artemis Zora relationship was going to be the main relationship of this book. Um, so there wasn't, I didn't really want, because in Made You Up and Eliza and Her Monsters, a romantic relationship was the, the main core of it. Um, and for this one, especially because Zora is asexual, um, which gets brought up, but it's kind of like, eh, it's not really a big, let's move that off over here. Um, it's not really relevant to this particular adventure, although if there is a right. sequel, we might see some more of that, yeah? Yeah, exactly. So it's like it's brought up and she there's there's like flickers of interest in in that area. But then it's more about her and Artemis um, as friends and as cousins and family members um, and then bringing their family together as a whole. Um, and as an extension of that about like, you know, Zora and her sister Sadie um, and and their kind of bond um, with with their dad and with their mom and. Um, how their parents see them. And so I knew I wanted those two things to be the center of the story, this relationship between Zora and Artemis, friendship, and then between Zora and Sadie. Um, so that was always kind of the main conceit of it. So how many, I mean, because you're, I, I can't even envision this story without Ghost. Um, yeah. But so how many how many drafts did you have to do and how long did this this take to do? I actually only wrote, I mean, in terms of like full revisions of how it changed, I really only did like one first draft, um, which was the one like of this, uh, after we figured out like, okay, she's going to see ghosts. There are going to be fire starters. There's going to be all this stuff. Um, oh, Cause you didn't do a full book. With no, no ghosts. You just wrote, okay, I gotcha. Yeah. So like I did scenes, I did like maybe five or six chapters of each earlier draft, but it never kind of became the whole thing. Um, and then when I got to this one, it was like, okay, this is the idea we settled on. Um, let's, let's write this one out. Um, so yeah, this is the only one that I actually did a full draft on, which is strange for me because a lot of my other books, I have, you know, five or six first drafts of completely different stories, um, for stuff, uh, Eliza and then this one and now entering Adamsville are the two that like... Pretty much, the, there was one first draft, and then we edited from there. Gotcha. So, how long? How long does all that take? Ooh, all like all the writing and editing and everything. Oh goodness. Um, so let's see. When I started writing that draft, that first draft, mm, I say it took me three to four months to to draft the book. Uh, I think it could have been anywhere from three to six. Um. Because usually what happens when I'm drafting is I will write part of it, take a break of like a couple weeks in the middle, and then come back and finish. Because um, that's just how my brain works, I guess. Uh, so I did that, and then I sent it off to my agent. 
and then they read it over. I did like three or four rounds of edits with my agent and her assistants. Um, and then we sent it to my publisher and then we did many rounds of edits with my publisher, which always happens. That's kind of par for the course. Um, cause you go through line edits, uh, copy edits, final pass pages. You get the advanced copies you can read through and find extra, you know, issues, um, and then I also did the artwork that's in the book. So there's a map in the book of Adamsville. Um, there's character artwork. There's little um, spot art on the chapters. And then the acknowledgments page is a piece of artwork. Um, and so I was doing all of that, like in between all of the edits and everything. And that's your artwork? Uh-huh. Yeah, everything, any piece of art that's in my books is my artwork. Awesome. So I know that you do a lot of art as, as well. I'm very jealous uh, because I, I know you uh, have a brain that does a little bit of everything because uh, yeah. you, you sell your artwork on the side. Your art is good enough to be featured in the book. Uh, something that just uh, amazed me when I uh, when I reread your bio is that you um, you have a, a degree in computer science and mathematics and you work with uh, computers, right? Yes. Yes, I do. My day job is... Uh... I work at a help desk for my day job. So like I'm I spend a lot of my time fixing printers, fixing computers, troubleshooting things. So yeah. Um, a lot of people think it's funny when they ask me like, Oh, what did you go to college for? And I say computer science with a minor in math. And they give me the, the blankest look like what? Like you didn't go for English. Um, and that was a very uh, conscious decision not to do that because I knew from just school that I hated writing prompts. I, I hated reading. I hated being forced to read books to analyze them um, and writing essays. Like writing essays is the death of me. I, I hate it to the core of my being. Um, the best essay I ever wrote was a comparison of the Hunger Games to Battle Royale, uh, the books. And I was like, well, this is fun. But other than that, I've hated every essay I've ever written. <laughs> um, and that was just because I got to read the Hunger Games and Battle Royale. Um, but uh, I, I knew that if I did English or creative writing as a major, I was going to get burnt out. Um, and I was probably going to hate myself the entire time. And I was like, what, what kind of job do you get with English or creative writing major? But you know you wanted to be a writer, right? You wanted to be a writer from age eight, and you were looking into agents in high school, yeah? Yeah, so, but I was, but I knew kind of in the back of my mind, having done all that research on agents and stuff, I was like, you don't need a degree in writing to get an agent or in English or anything. Like, it is completely unnecessary to, to do that. So I was like, okay, I know I don't need a degree in it to get an agent. So I'm going to do something completely different that I also have an interest in that has better job prospects, just in case the writing thing doesn't work out, which I, it was one of those weird things where I was like, I think it will, but I don't know for sure. So let's, let's do this just in case. Um, well, even when it works out, I'm learning more and more, talking to enough authors that uh, getting getting a good trade or a steady paying gig is not, not the worst thing you can do. Right, right. Especially when it's like, uh, what I know now is that like, I should not have writing as my full-time job because it's 
it just, it's so stressful to have that be your main source of income. And I never want writing to feel like a thing that I have to do. Um, because I write best when it's, I'm writing because I enjoy it and because it's fun. And, um, when I'm not on like drafting deadlines, I can be on editing deadlines, but drafting deadlines are the worst. I, I absolutely can't do it. Um, I might be able to do it for like a sequel, but I, I couldn't do it for the, the first draft of a story that I've just come up with. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I went into computer science, um, it wasn't super hard at the time because uh, at the time the college I went to didn't have like a super robust computer science program. It's a lot better now, but uh, it's, it was pretty easy. Got my degree, got a job, and uh, I had uh, my first book deal summer after my freshman year of college. No, 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 sorry. The It was the winter of my sophomore year of college. Uh, I got my agent in the summer. Um, so then I was like, okay, well, this is nice. I'm going to stay in school and still get a computer science job. Um, just so I can... Even after, because Made You Up would have come out uh, before you graduated, right? It, it came out the month I graduated. Like oh, literally okay. two weeks after I graduated college. Um, yeah. So, but it was still kind of like that thing of like, uh, I don't want to tempt fate. So I'm just going to... Keep, keep on keeping on. Let's just see what happens. But it was definitely, it did definitely take a lot of pressure off for sure. Um, so I was like, okay, I have a way to pay my college loans. Good. Um, but yeah, so. I never want to uh, author shame, uh, so I won't do that. But there is an author <laughs> who I would uh, consider to be uh, this isn't anything against him, um, but he's somebody that I would consider like that's that's who I'm that's that's where I'm headed that's who yeah. I want to be uh, because he's he's been around he's done lots of great things mm-hmm. wonderful books um, has a has a charming podcast and that's all the clues I can really give before mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've I've added him uh, but he he talked openly on the podcast about uh, his side hustles, and he at one point was gathering some kind of small animal. I don't remember what kind, but he'd read online that people were paying good money for it. And oh. this is a, a dude that, if I said his name, which I won't, you'd be like, "Oh my God, really?" Yeah, yeah, somebody that multiple awards, uh, master of the genre, and huh. he's still he's still hustling on the side, trying to yeah. trying to get that cash. Yeah, like it's. It's And it's not like a, I, I think some people when they ask me, because I've had a few people recently ask me, um, like, oh, do you want to write full time? It's like, I don't even, I mean, even if it weren't like the stress of it, it's like, man, I got to have something else to do. Like just to, just to let my mind, like to free my mind up. Because if you think about writing all the time, you're kind of, you're just going to burn out. Um, and at the same time, it's like, yeah, you got to make that money. Like, I need money to live. Books are great, but have you tried food? Yeah, like, man, <laughs> it's food. Pretty good. I like food. I like, you know, being able to listen to my Spotify music without having commercials is nice every once in a while. <laughs> I like clothes. I like having a roof over my head. I like that I grouped my Spotify music in with all, like, basic, like, necessities. 
Yeah, but if you spend a lot of time at your computer and you have to write with something, do you I, uh, do you listen to music when you write? I do, I do, and actually, like, I think I would shrivel up and die if I didn't have my my Spotify music. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but like, I listen to it on the way to work. I listen to it coming home. I listen to it when I'm brainstorming, when I'm drafting, when I'm exercising. Um, I actually try not to wear headphones too much because I'm I have this super deep anxious and existential fear of like going deaf or like having horrible constant tinnitus but um I do I love listening to music when I when I write um and I have music is a big part of like how I form stories so I have um a separate playlist for every book or series um and each one is unique because it like I it kind of captures how I'm thinking about the tone of that story or the aesthetic of that story. Um, so for example, like now entering Adamsville is a lot of like, it's horror movie soundtracks, um, pop rock, uh, <laughs> golden oldies. Uh, Cause I had to get sunshine's lo- lollipops and rainbows on there. Sunshine lollipops and rainbows on there or when uh, Zora is doing her decapitations um, and like like some there's some like Foo Fighters and Linkin Park in there too um, whereas horror movie soundtracks yeah horror movie soundtracks no, which ones oh which ones um, uh, The Grudge I think The Grudge and The Ring are the two um, that I put on there just because they have that great like slow moving ambient quality to them um uh and then eliza actually didn't really have a playlist because i wrote it so fast and because the like the idea was there and then i just wrote it and then it was like oh didn't have time for a playlist okay um but like made you up is a lot of um more like poppy music um there's some like german pop on there um there's uh, some like Nightmare Before Christmas songs. There's it, all kinds of weird stuff. But like the the Made You Up soundtrack is very different from the Adamsville soundtrack. Um, and like then you get into something like Monstrous Sea, which uh, Monstrous Sea is the webcomic that Eliza draws in Eliza and her monsters. Um, and is also the story I've been working on since I was like eight years old. Uh, Monstrous Sea is completely different. It's like EDM and um, Coldplay and just the most random stuff on there. But they're they're all very different sounds. What's your favorite Coldplay song? Uh, oh, goodness. Oh, gosh. See, now some people are going to be like, you like Coldplay? And I'm going to be yeah. like, stupid people. They make me happy. Um, oh gosh, I love so many of them. I'm going to have to say Clocks because it was like the first one that I heard and it was the one that I just, I learned how to play it on the piano because it's super difficult, obviously. And I just, it's like that one that no matter where it is, if it comes on, I'm like, oh, I'm there. I'm there. Like, oh, we're happy. Let's go. Um, I remember the first time I heard that was in a trailer for some Peter Pan movie, and I never watched the movie, but I watched the trailer like five or six times. Because of clocks. That's great. Yeah. I love clocks. (laughs) Clocks, speed of sound. See, now I'm just going to have to get my... At one point, I had like all of them. I love... I I love... They're one of the rare bands that I will listen to their whole album. 
because like of any of their albums like most bands i will not listen to the whole album i'll listen to like one or two songs and then be like eh, i don't like the rest of this Coldplay, i'll put it on and i can listen to the entire thing um and there are actually only two bands i've ever done that with Coldplay and pendulum which is an australian um drum and bass band that are now i suppose officially broken up and turned into oh, nice yeah, coupled <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're knife party now, which is a uh, uh, dubstep. They're still good, but I'm not as big into dubstep as I am into drum and bass. So, but yeah, Pendulum, I can listen to all their songs. That's a big Monstrous Sea one. So Pendulum and Coldplay are kind of the base of of the Monstrous Sea playlist. Um, but God, I love Coldplay. And actually, I wanted to ask you about Monstrous Sea because I saw that it's you've got teasers available on Wattpad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at this point, you're I, I, I think I said you had over 50,000 reads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Something why like are we not going to be getting the full version of Monstrous Sea at, at some point in the near future? Uh, so, okay. So it has been my dream since I was a, but a young child to have Monstrous Sea like professionally published by a big publishing house, like just to get it the royal treatment, right? Which could backfire horribly. Um, but it's it's one of those things where like I have and people people ask me this all the time. So in case anybody is listening who's wondering, I have the entire first book of Monstrous Sea written. Like it's written, hasn't been edited, nothing's been done with it. It's written. I have a hundred and thirty-six thousand words of book two written. Again, not finished, not edited, but it's it's one hundred and thirty-six thousand words is not finished. Nope. It's probably going to be like a hundred and I mean, I had my target was like 150 and I'm just now in like part four of six, I think. So I'm like, "Mm, this might end up being a little bit longer than that. I'm sure it'll get, I'm sure it would get cut down in editing, but like, yeah, I'm I'm partway through that. And so it's like, these things exist. They could be published. Um, The reason they're not is because of me not wanting to do self-publishing. I would I would really love for it to be put through a, a professional publishing house to really go through the like the rigorous editing process. Not that self-published books can't be rigorously edited, but I, I would like it to have that that experience and to be able to reach that kind of market. Um, and so for the Wattpad thing, like, I will keep posting, like, teasers and little snippets and stuff on there as long as I can. Um, but for the most part, it's like, I can, I, I, it just, it just, I'm like, ah, I want to post the whole thing. I just want to give people the whole thing. But I can't. And it makes me so sad. Um, and, like, I want to, I want to talk to people. I love it when, like, somebody, you know, really gets into reading it and, like, just, gets into the characters and like either draws fan art or goes on Tumblr and asks me like specific questions about things. So like um, in Eliza and her monsters, she meets some characters who take on screen names of characters in monstrous sea. We've got a lot of levels here. Um, And this person asked me like, uh, what are the powers that these characters inside monstrous sea have that like relate to these screen names like what can they do what are they like you know they want to the people who are asking me more more like world building questions about monstrous sea and like 
even from just the snippets they've gotten of it, they're asking me all these great questions about things. And I'm like, oh, I love it. I love it. Just, just ask me more things. Like I want to tell you everything. I just want to give you, I would give you like a compendium of the entire world if I could. Um, but that kind of more, but for monster C. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have, um, so I use Scrivener for a lot of my writing. Um, and I have a monstrous C world building document. Um, and like, <laughs> it's nuts when I open it on the sidebar. Um, so if you've never used Scrivener on the sidebar, um, you can have like all your different folders and there's different ways to organize things or whatever. And in this world building document, I have folders for every like continent, every ocean, every island, every city, every like every different place. And in these, I'm like trying to write out like, you know, what are the different like creatures that exist? What are the cultures that are here? What are the different, um, you know, things that they wear, toys that they have, languages they speak. And it's just when I get started doing it, it's, it's like, it's so much fun. And I just have such a good time just kind of like playing God basically in this world and just being able to like, I want to zoom in on this one little part of this ocean. Be like, what's in this part of the ocean? Let's, let's make up a thing that's here. And that may not even come up in the books, but it's just like a cool part of the world that I can bring up later if I want to. Um, so I have this whole big long Scrivener document with all this information in it. Um, and I found out that inside Scrivener, you can link different documents to each other inside that big document, like Wikipedia. So you can create hyperlinks inside of it. I was like, oh my God, I can own Wikipedia for Monstrous Sea inside the Scrivener document. And it was like the greatest revelation of my life. And I was so happy about it. <laughs> Why don't I, well, there's a lot in publishing I, I, I don't understand, which is a good good part of the reason I'm doing this show is to, is to learn. Tell me. Right, <laughs> but, right. It, uh, it's, it's just, I, I can't help but wonder, like, you're, you're Francesca Zappia. I've read multiple articles just today saying, is this Indiana's next John Green? <laughs> um, I, I came across, like, 20 different articles that, that oh, all yeah. said that. And uh, the, the, the obligatory eye roll, I know, but if people called me the next John Green, excellent. Continue right. to call me that. Great. I'm not, I'm not going to say don't do it. <laughs> Um, I mean, I'm not. <laughs> this isn't the next crash course. But you go right. on and you say that, and I love you for saying it. Um, but you know, you've 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 had a great deal of success, and I don't understand why when you come into the the the, the publishing world and say, "Hey, world, I'm Francesca Zappia. We're doing this. Everybody doesn't snap to attention." And, right. and because I know it's publishing, and there there are lots of folks that that, that I've, I've asked the same question, and they're like, "No, man, nobody gets to that level." except for like Stephen King, and he might not be at that level. Because right. uh, publishing can always just go, no. Yeah. Um, but, um, but when you've got a proven fan base, when you've already got the 50,000 reads, apropos of, of, I'm assuming, very limited marketing, you're obviously very passionate about it. Where's the wiggle room, man? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> man. Like, so I think, so part of the thing is, so this is crazy to me because I think I think 50,000 is a lot. And then, you know, like my agent looks at 50,000 and she's like, mm, that's not so great. Maybe we don't say that to them. And I'm like, what? So they're looking at like, they need like millions. Um, but it, it, it's like it, part of it, I think, has been a 
career trajectory thing. So because my first two books were contemporary, we've been trying to slowly, you know, like ease my readers into my fantasy, sci-fi, paranormal type of stuff. Um, because that is what I love to write. That's what most of my writing is. Um, I actually don't write that much contemporary. So I'm very sorry if anybody is listening to this and it's like, I love your contemporary books. I might write more in the future, but that's not my main, that's not my main thing. That's not what a lot of my ideas are. Um, so it's part of like trying to transition more into that stuff. So you don't want to come out of Eliza out of two contemporary books and then hit people with like hard, you know, science fantasy where like a, a hard four book science fantasy series. Um, so, and it was one of those things of like, they don't know if there's a big enough fan base to make that a thing. Um, oh, they do now. I just told them. <laughs> oh, yeah, you just, just now. Hey, 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 HarperCollins. <laughs> Why don't you just get on that? Um, God, that would be great. That would be so great. Um, but uh, it, it's, and it's, it's like, it might also be one of those things where they're like, we're just not sure how to market this yet, you know? So it's like, it, it's, it's that real weird thing where it might be a lot of little things adding up to why it hasn't happened yet. Maybe there is one central reason. And I'm just not sure what it is. Um, but it, the, the main thing for me right now is like, you know, I, I absolutely love seeing that people are into it. I love it so much. And like, that is, that's what the publisher wants to see is the demand for it. And they want to see that, you know, people are interested in this and more people continue getting interested in it as they read Eliza. And all they got of it from Eliza was little snippets. Um, you know, they got barely anything. They've gotten barely anything from the teaser um, on Wattpad. And so as long as that keeps growing and people keep showing interest in it and it, you know, just kind of keeps rolling along, um, there is a better and better chance that it could happen. And I'm, I'm obviously never going to stop pushing for it to happen. Um, you're still writing it. Yeah. And I'm still writing it. So, and that's another thing that publishers like to see like, Oh, you have a series. Oh, you already have this much of it, you know, like written out. So yeah, you might have to change all of that, but like you have the capability to write multiple books. Um, so there's different things they like to see, you know, they really have to have that proof that you're going to sell. They have to know that there's a fan base for it. They have to know how to market it. Um, all kinds of things. They have to know that the market is right for that kind of book, which I think it is because I've been seeing a lot of science fantasy books um, come out. And actually, slight tangent, it really, uh, it kind of, it's like a pet peeve of mine when, um, which this may be something that they have to do because people just don't know what science fantasy is. But I've seen uh, more science fantasy books being pitched recently and like um, being acquired, but they always call it like either science fiction with a fantasy twist or fantasy with a science fiction twist or genre bending science fiction fantasy or whatever. And I'm like, it's called science fantasy. It's a thing. It already exists. You can just call it what it is. Um, and so uh, I think it's part of that of like, 
you know. Like Christopher Columbus, what are all these people doing on the land I just discovered? (laughs) Okay, you must be Indians. Nope, (laughs) you're not in the Indies, sir. Yeah, you are now, though. (laughs) Moving on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, there's, there's so many different factors. If I could make it happen, I would do it in a heartbeat. I might be sad about it because there's this trend of like, after I write a book and put it out there, I kind of like, I don't think about it as much anymore. So like with Made You Up, I don't really think about those characters. Every once in a while, I'll come back to them, but I, I don't, that book is done. It's, it's set aside. I, now I have more room in my brain for other things. And so I'm really worried that like when I finish Monster C, it's going to be like, there's going to be this huge, it's, it's kind of like how Eliza feels about it. Um, Cause a lot of her feelings in that book were kind of autobiographical where it's like, she feels like, you know, what's she going to do when Monster C is done? She's going to be like a puppet with her strings cut. Um, and sometimes I'm like, Oh my God, what's going to happen if it ever gets published and it's finished. And like, am I just going to stop? moving like am I gonna um I'm I'm pretty sure that's not gonna happen because I have so many other ideas in that world and the world is so there's so many things to do and to explore that I'm pretty sure I can just be like I can just go write another one now like I don't have to leave that world if I don't want to you can do I mean anything you want really can't you yeah see my thing is my big thing with stories is that like every story has to have an end so I probably, most likely, see, I'm going to say never, and then it's going to happen. Um, most <laughs> likely, I will never, like, once a story with a certain set of characters is done, I probably won't, like, resurrect them to, like, oh, I finished this trilogy, and that was just going to be the trilogy. Oh, but I thought of a new trilogy, and they're going to be in this one, too. I probably won't do that. I tend to think out my stories and have a definite endpoint for them. Um, and then where they end, like, that's it. That's the end of that character's story. I might have another one in the same world. Um, but I like to plan it out. And I, I, as a, as a viewer slash reader, I hate it when things just don't end. Like, like the Marvel movies. I love, I loved watching Avengers Endgame. I, I watched all the movies up to that. And then I was like, okay this is my stopping point because I cannot keep watching these because they can just go on forever. Um, uh, and I, yeah. Which some people love and I'm like, I can't do it. I am going to watch the new Doctor Strange though because it is going to be a horror movie. So, you know. Oh, I'm going to watch Black Widow too and Black Panther too. Can't get here soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I all stories have to have an end. So with those characters, I would probably close out that that quartet if that is what it ends up being um but i would definitely go do other things in that world and there may be like hints of those characters there may be mentions of those characters but it would not be a continuation of that story and are you uh, a type plotter or you do a little bit more free seat in my pants hippie (laughs) (laughs) so it's kind of both i'm kind of in between because i have to know where it starts and where it ends Um, Because basically it's knowing where the character starts and where the character is going to end. Um, And that'll tell you how the the story should start and how it should end. Um, And I know I tend to figure out big plot points in the middle. 
Um, and then I, so I know point A and point B, I start at point A and I start writing. And generally as I'm writing, that's the kind of pantsing part of it where it's like, okay, how do I get to point B? And I just do it like whatever would logically come next. We go to that. Um, story always has to be written chronologically. I can't write it out of order. I, do, I don't know how writers, some writers do that. Um, I have to write it in order because every scene has to logically follow the last. And I have to know where the character was just before that. I have to know where they're going just after that. Um, sometimes if I have like an idea for like a snippet or something of like dialogue or a character revelation, I might type it out real fast and just put it away in part of a document and come back to it later. Um, but I can't write whole scenes out of order. Um, so I do a little bit of outlining, um, get a basic outline, start writing, and then I let that outline be malleable and I let it change as the story goes on. Okay, that makes sense. So do you write out an actual outline? Um, I, I'm big on writing out my outline as I go, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, beforehand. So do you keep track of that like that, or do you just keep writing and keep it all up here until until you're good, with the exception, of course, of Monstrous Sea, where you've got your entire uh, own individual Wikipedia? <laughs> um, so I think, I know what I did for Adamsville, and I think what I've been doing for most stories is, like, I will outline... I'll write out an outline for the first half of the book. Um, and then I'll put like the first half of the book and then how it ends. And so then I'll write using that first half of the book. And as I'm writing in my head, my part of my brain is focused on the actual writing and part of it is focused on like how these plot threads spin out. And so as I'm writing, I'm kind of finishing the outline in my head. So then I'll go back and start putting, filling out the second half of the outline. Um, so then by the time I actually get to the second part, I have a better idea of how certain plot lines should resolve themselves, how the character arcs should resolve themselves, um, you know, how the climax should work out, who's going to be involved where, um, what, th what things I planted in the beginning that I need to bring up later, what I'm going to need bring up later that I have to go back and add to the beginning. Um, so it's, it's like a two-step process, kind of. That makes sense uh, to me because that, that's pretty similar to what I do. In fact, I'm learning that we have all kinds of things in common, including an affinity for nice black glasses. Yeah, great black glasses. Exactly. Uh, so then uh, I know it, it, when I asked you, I got to plug back in 2015 when you faced the seven questions exclusively available at MotivateNinja.com. Um, I asked you... Um, uh, about your writing habits and you said at that time that you tried to write for at least a half hour every day mm -hmm. is that still true or has that changed a little bit oh so I don't have a strict time limit anymore what I try to do is when I go up to bed every night I will sit down with my computer in bed which is a terrible idea um and open up whatever document I'm working on and I will try because like nighttime uh late night and early morning is like my best time for like creative stuff. Um, so I'll sit down, open up the document and just try to get into the character's head and just work through a scene or whatever, just work on whatever I was last writing. Usually what happens is I will, I will be able to sit there for about half an hour and then I fall asleep. <laughs> um, 
So as soon as I realize that I'm falling asleep, I'm like, okay, it's time to go. And I'm always so reluctant because I'm like, no, I used to be able to stay up until 1 a.m. writing. And now I can't even stay up till like 9.30. Um, so I get really sad about it. But um, I try to do that uh, when I'm in like the planning stages of a book or, or anything like that, brainstorming. If I'm actually like hardcore, like, okay, I am drafting a book. I'm in the middle of it. Um, in that case, I will, usually what I do is on like the weekends, I try to go to the library and like uh, rent out one of their study rooms for two hours. And with, I'll sit there with my outline and my computer and I'll just try to get through, you know, as much as I can um, while I'm there. So at least try to do like a chapter every two days or so. Because um, usually if I'm in the middle of writing, if I have an outline, I can I can bang a story out pretty fast. Um, but yeah, if I'm if I'm just doing it for fun, just trying to feel out an idea or anything, I'll just, you know, do it at night right before I go to bed um, and just try to get some of the some of that stuff out of my head. So you mentioned banging out a story and I had a uh, couple of uh, passages that I had uh I had a bunch of passages that I'd drawn attention to, but I have a rule when it comes to passages is anything past a hundred pages is spoilery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't share those, but there's, um, Oh, where are they? I'm going to uh, read a brief part of your own book to you. So look forward to that. Oh, great. Um, you had a couple of descriptions. Uh, his fingers were stickier than flypaper in June. Mm -hmm. I'm kissing my fingers for podcast folks. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Greta Wick was what you got if a Greek statue had sex with the Williams-Sonoma catalog, <laughs> which is outstanding. I, I was so proud of myself for that one because um, have you have – you, um, heard of i believe it's called the hater's guide to the williams sonoma catalog which is a it's a it's an online article that this guy does every year and he gets the williams sonoma catalog and he goes through and just makes fun of the stuff in there um and my agent actually like showed me this originally and i was like this is ridiculous but like i had seen you know obviously i'd seen that kind of stuff other places and i was like that's the kind of like that's indiana rich is like <laughs> that's just, Indiana Rich right there. Like you, this is stuff that you don't need. That is ridiculous to buy. That just makes you look like a rich person, but you're not really, you know, you're Indiana Rich. Um, you may be fabulously wealthy, but you're still just Indiana Rich. Uh, um, Devos woke up tomorrow and was Indiana Rich. She killed herself. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's that that was like I was like, this is how Zora thinks of this. That's not necessarily the way that Gret, her aunt Greta is, um, as we see later in the book. But like, that's how Zora thinks of her as this kind of like William Sonoma rich person who can just spend her money on whatever she wants and just always has to look picture perfect um, and is like just kind of has she Zora believes her aunt has this just kind of like uppity air to her um and like elitist entitlement um it sounds like yeah she would definitely compare her to the Williams Sonoma catalog 
Well, I like those, and then I, I picked those two because they they were the, some highlights that I had early on. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I you know I had I had more throughout, and and with Major up as well, um, lots of lots of highlights of just absolutely brilliant passages. So you're you're banging out uh, your first draft. Is, are those great descriptions coming in on day one, or when does the uh, pro when do you polish your prose? The, uh, the all the all the really good stuff actually usually does come on the first the first draft and I think it's because um it and actually I think in terms of like polishing prose I don't my prose never gets like upgraded in a way that I think some people think of it where it's like you know you're adding all these cool descriptions in and stuff all the good stuff is already there it's more like just trimming back the weeds so that you can see like the nice hedge it's like you're just trimming the hedge basically um so trim out the extra words, you know, rearrange some some um, sentences so that they sound better. Um, but yeah, all those all those descriptions just come out when I'm initially drafting because that's kind of when my brain is just in like just worker mode, and so it's just kind of like I'm letting everything flow out. Um, and those are usually the first things that that come to mind. Um, when I'm really in the zone. If I'm not in the zone, everything sounds like garbage. And I just end up having to like, I'll, I'll read it later, usually on the second draft. If I read a passage and I'm like, this is weak, this is just weak writing. I'll go back and, and tune it up a little bit. Um, just make it more active, make it, you know, a little bit more, try to connect it a little bit more with the character and what's going on. Um, but stuff like that, those usually come out in like the first draft. One that didn't, that I can remember for made you up was um, so my editors had asked uh, me to make like put in a few more scenes between Alex and miles and like in terms of them getting to know each other and like their, their blossoming romance um, and, and how Alex like kind of comes to um, be interested in miles. And there's one scene where she takes him a, a piece of black forest cake while he's at work and he eats the cherry off of it and she like freaks out and is is like staring at him and she's like oh i could watch him eat cherries all day. i could watch him eat an entire jar of cherries um and that one came out in edits like pretty late and that's one of my favorite lines in that book is when she's just creepily staring at him and thinking about how she could watch him eat a whole jar of cherries <laughs> it is extremely creepy i know <laughs> like i just imagine her being like and i think she but I also identify because young me was occasionally a bit of a creeper. So yeah, no, yeah. I get it. <laughs> it's like that teenage feeling of like, and I think you kind of get that feeling like she kind of knows that it's a creepy thing to think, but she's like, um, what can I do? I'm thinking it. All right. This is a thought we're having right now. I can't say it out loud, but mm, I really like watching him eat. That's a nice thing about uh, interior dialogue and, and writing in general is you get to say all those things you wouldn't say mm-hmm. in, in real life most of the time. Yeah, most of the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let me, uh, do you, when, when, you're, when you're looking at revision, do you use critique partners, beta readers, or is it just straight on to the agent and then the never-ending revisions from the publisher? Uh, no, I always have critique partners read it. Um, so I have my critique partners read it. Um, I have sensitivity readers read it if need be. Um, and I have great critique partners. Like they are, they're the best, um, shout out to, uh, Darcy Cole, who will most likely listen to this. Um, 
Hi, Darcy. Who is, hi, Darcy, who is amazing and reads literally everything I've written. She has read every single thing I've written um, and is eagerly awaiting the second Monstrous Sea book that I haven't finished yet um, and is like one of my biggest like fans, is my biggest fan. Um, like she's amazing. So many great, great people. Um, I always have them read it first because I know that they, they know what I'm looking for and they know how to give me feedback that is useful and not, they don't sugarcoat anything and they're not trying to go easy on me. Um, and they will straight up tell me like, Hey, this doesn't make sense. Or this is, this is not good right here. Redo it. Or, you know, but they also know, like, they, they know, um, what I need to hear in order to make it better, if that makes sense. Um, cause you know, sometimes people can say something and you're like, I don't know what you mean. Like, I don't know how I should change that. They know how to word it, phrase it, however you want to say to where I'm like, ah, yes, I understand. Okay. I got it. Um, and I love reading their stuff. Um, it's always a, a back and forth. Um, but it always you got a, this is a long-term group you've been with for a while now. Um, people have kind of come and gone. Um, Darcy has been one of those long-term people. Um, it's definitely smaller now. My group of critique learners is a lot smaller now than it has been, than it was in the past. It used to be that I had like seven or eight. Um, but as you go along, you kind of whittle, whittle it down. Um, you send some things to some people and other things to others. Um, you whittle it down. And obviously, like, you know, as you go along, people get busy. People, you know, go off in different directions. Um, so it's, it's, it's a lot smaller now. Um, but there's a few that have, that have stuck around the whole time. I just applaud those people that uh, can put writing down and find something that they love. <laughs> Right. As much or more. Like you, you, you found a way out. You're free. Yeah. <laughs> Freedom. You're free forever. Like sometimes I wonder, like with my friends, they'll be like, you know, they do their day job. They go, they go have like relationships. They go out, hang out at like bars and they go out and do things. And I'm like, how? I'm so tired. I don't, how does this even work? Like, okay. All right. They're like you want to go on vacation, and I'm like, no, I want to go to bed. Like, I don't have the energy to travel anywhere. So, um, I have lots of questions for you, but I know it's it's getting late. You mentioned 9:30 was about uh, oh. Betty by time, and here we are. It's 9:37. Uh, everybody be listening to this, whatever they listen to. It. But for, but for you and I here in uh, good old Indiana, with this one. God bless it. Eastern time across the whole state. It's 937. God bless. Um, so I've got to add, well, everybody that listens to the show knows I have to ask you, legally required to ask, uh, Francesca Zappia, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? Okay. Are we talking specifically flying saucers or are we talking like UFOs, aliens? I mean, unidentified flying object is acceptable. What do you got? Okay. So... I believe I saw a UFO when I was younger. Um, I cannot describe it for you, but I know it hovered 
in midair and it was very high up and it was not attached to anything and it looked like ice cream it looked oh. like ice cream scoop like scoop three scoops of ice cream right next to each other and it just kind of hovered up and it was in like blue sky like clear blue sky was um, it like a was it brightly lit or was it a metal thing what color was it it was like i remember it being like white and i want to say white pink and yellow and i was like what is that and I, I just remember standing there and watching it for a really long time because it was so high up in the sky and there was nothing around it. And the sky was bright blue. And it just kind of hung there. And I was like, I don't know. And I don't remember if it disappeared or if I turned around or something and it wasn't there anymore. I do not remember. I do believe, uh, I do believe in aliens. 100%. The universe cannot be as big as it is. And, like, I realize that the existence of humans is, like, however huge, a, a, you know, a, a, an impossibility or whatever. But it's like, hey, we're here, and the universe is gigantic, so there's got to be intelligent life somewhere else in the universe. That's what I believe. 100%. That, that, yeah. that makes sense to me. Do you think they're coming here? Um, I think, I think if they have the ability to travel, they've probably already been here and either the government knows and they're not telling us, although I feel like somebody would have found out by now, like for sure. Um, or they have already been here and we don't know because it's like, if you've got the technology to travel through space and like get here, you're probably pretty advanced. Um, and you may or may not want to have anything to do with us. So I, I think it, like, it's, I think, was it like Stephen Hawking or somebody who said that, like, if aliens come here, they're for sure not going to be, like, nice to us. They're, like, for sure just going to conquer us or kill us or whatever. Yeah, and Stephen like, Hawking was big on stop, stop saying it out signal, stop letting them know we're here. Shut up. <laughs> like, like, whatever, man. If aliens are going to kill us all, then it's going to happen. Like, they're going to find us one way or another. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I like to think of, like, the Star Trek way of things. Or not Star Trek. Star Trek, though, yes. Actually, that would be sweet. Um, if we could just have, like, utopian Earth and then we all just go out on missions on starships. That would be cool. I love Star Trek. The, uh, the Stargate. The, it's like, okay... That seems believable that they took some humans as like slaves and then took them to other planets and populated the galaxy that way or whatever. Um, like, yeah, that could happen. Um, but I don't want to sound like the, uh, the one guy that everybody makes memes of on the History Channel episode about ancient aliens or whatever it was. Oh, Giorgio Sukalos with the hair. Yeah, yeah, with the guy with the hair. Um, but yeah, I'm not no, saying I, it was aliens, but it was aliens. Yeah. But it was aliens. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, I believe there are aliens out there. Um, I hope they are. I hope they're advanced enough. See, I feel like that thing of like, oh, aliens, any aliens that are out there are going to try to kill us. I feel like that's the human coming through. And I'm like, why can't we believe that they are advanced enough to understand why we like 
why can't they be advanced enough to understand that like you know you don't have to fight or or attack something that you don't understand you know like like the uh, the aliens in arrival like they were very they were chill they were like hey we just want to give you our language so that you can you can better yourselves as a race it's like why can't they be aliens like that that was a sneaky movie I'm still yeah. a little bit annoyed by Arrival because it's like, oh, it's, it's Lois Lane and she's going to talk to the aliens? This is fun. I'm enjoying mm-hmm. myself. Wait, what? Oh, God, I'm crying all over myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love that movie. That movie was so good. I so loved beautiful, it. but what a sneak so attack. So beautiful. Yes, exactly. It's like, oh, no. I wasn't expecting this. And when they yes. reveal the twist, no spoilers for those who haven't had the experience. Like, oh, that was staring at me at the face the whole time. Yep. <sighs> you got yep. me. <laughs> yep. Oh. That so that good. transitions us back to Ghost, which I promised, and we, we can't we can't leave it alone we completely. Can't leave without we can't it it. Uh, but I want to ask you, having had that experience early, having lived in a haunted house, um, having lived in a world where this is a hundred percent a thing. Um, I have, to the best of my knowledge, not seen a ghost or a flying saucer, for that matter. Um, but I do believe, uh, certainly 100% in flying saucers, there's there's enough evidence at this point that I get annoyed when people say, why? Dude, let me send you some literature. It's, it's just like, <laughs> um, but, and then with uh, ghosts, that gives me a little bit of heebie-jeebies, so it's not quite my jam. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but having having had that experience, having had other experiences with the blood on your face and everything else, how does that shape your view of the world? How does that shape your review of religion? Do you have some sense of what happens after we shuffle off this mortal coil? I have I have no idea what happens, um, and it doesn't necessarily like freak me out or anything. It's it's one of those things where it's like. I don't, I don't want to believe the, the scientific answer of, like, you just die. Like, you just cease. Like, that's kind of, that's a bummer. Which uh, makes all of our thoughts that aren't that suspect, because we definitely want that to not be true. Right, right. Like, I'm like, um, I don't want to believe that. That just makes life sad. Um, I would like to believe that my my ideal, like, after death experience would be like i mean i think i think the idea of like a heaven or like any kind of afterlife where you get to be with your loved ones and you know have you ever seen the movie um uh oh my god i'm gonna forget the name now it ha- it's robin williams um oh, where he no, dies he dies and goes to heaven and yeah, i know what's it called dreams, something what dreams, dreams are- make Yes. dreams may come um and and like that version of heaven was like amazing to me because you can make whatever you want and you have this whole you basically have a whole world where you can be alone you can be whatever you want but then you can also go out and like find your family and be with your loved ones and stuff like that like that was a great version of heaven i was like i'll take that um but my other thought was it would be amazing to be a ghost spirit form energy whatever you want to call it and to be able to go out into the universe and just like explore space and like you wouldn't have to worry about you know breathing eating sleeping none of that stuff you just go out and like see what's out there like so like go see the Marylands or just be dr manhattan floating around all zen like around mars and elsewhere 
I'd go see what's inside black holes, like what's past the the because there are people who say that I saw something like some science thing that said like there could be super advanced civilizations inside the event horizon of black holes that we can't even we don't even know that they're there. Um, so it's like I want to know what's inside the event horizon of a black hole. Um, I want to I, I just want to know like. I want to see what's out there. I want to see other planets, you know. Um, and they might be sad and desolate. And they might be beautiful, and um, but that would be that would be really really cool. And then maybe after you know you get tired of that, you can like retire to the what dreams may come heaven, and be like, okay, I get to I get to just chill here for a while. And then maybe a summer place in that heaven. And yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. And then go back out and then be like, Hey, I'm, I'm going, I'm going on a trip. Anybody want to come? Um, and then, you know, maybe do the, what dreams may come thing where you get reincarnated. Like that'd be pretty cool too. Cause maybe you'll get tired of, you know, like being alive forever or being, you know, I, I, that's 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 my problem with a lot of immortality stories where like the character ends up being immortal and that's supposed to be like a good thing like oh they get to live with their loved one forever because they're both immortal and it's like Jesus that's a long time like I think you would get I tired of it like that, but I'm gonna be a, a Mr. Sappy here yeah I think I could spend the immortality with my wife that is adorable it is it is. And I can see the wheels are turning, picking holes in that, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess if you were if you were with your loved one, maybe not, but in general the idea of immortality just kind of gives me the like, oh god. Just like exa- immediate exhaustion. Oh okay. Um I think it was different. There's there's so many stories that end with if humans didn't die, this wouldn't be as special because it's fleeting. And I always think that's the argument we make because that's there's no alternative. There's no like, well, you know what? I think immortality would be great, so I'm going to go do that. And because that's not an option, we have to sell ourselves this bullcrap story that no, it's good that that happens. It's good that (laughs) it's good that we die. You know, Um, well, it actually like my problem with immortality goes back to my problem with like series that don't end or like shows that don't end whatever it's like you like the idea that you need death to make your life mean something because if it can just go on forever what are you I mean but that's the thing it's like well you can have so many things in there that you can do you can make so many things better you could change all kinds of things um but just from a from a certain standpoint, it's like, man, just got to end though, right? Like, you get tired of something sooner or later. But, I don't know. You say that, but when Batman 99 comes out, I'm going to be first in line. <laughs> Let's watch it. <laughs> He's fighting the Joker again. Great. <laughs> oh, cool. Awesome. I'm there. Let's uh, let's end on a, on a more practical question, and we'll we'll call it a night because it's it's getting late, and uh, we keep going. We're going to get silly. We, neither of us want that. Let's <laughs> let's end on a professional note. 
so Jesse, if there was one piece of advice you could go back and give young you at age eight, age 15, whatever age you, you think it would have made the most difference, what would you tell younger you about writing and about your career ahead that maybe would have made a significant difference and made things easier for you? I would go back and tell myself not to worry about what other people are doing. Like, don't you're going to see, you're going to get on social media and you're going to see what these other authors are doing. You're going to sell people selling books on spec. You're going to, which is when you sell it just right based on the idea for like, you know, to be published years ahead. So you haven't written it yet. You know, you're going to see people getting awards. You're going to see people getting on the bestseller list. You're going to see people getting all of this stuff. You're going to see all these accomplishments and you're not going to see all the work and and heartache that they had to put into this and all the bad things that happened to them along the way um and you know you're gonna feel a certain way about that and you shouldn't um you should just you know celebrate your accomplishments celebrate other people's accomplishments do your thing keep your eyes on your your own uh keep your eyes on your own paper uh, <laughs> just keep your head down and get the work done um because that is that's a killer trying to you know uh quote unquote keep up as it were with with what you see other people doing because everybody has their own process everybody has their own um race to run i guess you could say um and you're not I mean, in one way, you're competing against other people, but in another way, it's not personal like that. Um, and you should try to make it that way. Uh, are you? Do you hear like a really loud? No. For some reason, I was getting like a really loud. Uh, it's okay. I think it went away. I think we're good. All right. Maybe it was the ghost. <laughs> We've been waiting. It was the ghost. That was it. <laughs> Anyway, that, uh, what do they call the uh, spiritual sounds that, that come through? They get them on tape. EVPs. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> that was it. It was a ghost. It was a ghost talking into my microphone. That was it. That was our phenomenon for the night. Was oh my god! You're gonna go back and listen to that, and you're gonna hear a voice in there, and it's gonna be because I only heard it on my end. Ghosts. Okay, so I would tell I would tell my younger self. Um, just, just keep your eyes on your own paper, you know, celebrate with other people, but don't let that get you down. Don't let that be, you know, a, a, a detriment to your own work. Um, because everybody's just doing their best and, and trying to get out there and hustle. Um, and honestly, I think that would be like the best. Cause like my younger self, she knew how to write. She was fine. In the, on the writing side of things it was the the people side of things and the um the marketing the social media the publicizing yourself side of things like that was the part where where I needed help and where I still struggle to an extent but that was the big thing 
next podcast, we're going to talk all about marketing on social media and, and what you're doing there. But not tonight. Tonight, we're going to call it a day. So, Jesse, where uh, can uh, esteemed audience find you online and stalk you and buy all your books? Um, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Chessie Zappia, which is C-H-E-S-S-I-E. Um, and uh, I have a website, which is www.francescazappia.com. Um, you can buy my books from basically anywhere that sells books, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kids, Inc. Uh, it might actually, uh, well, by the time this comes out, you won't be able to get it signed anymore. But you can still order it from Kids, Inc. They're a great indie bookstore. Um, any, anywhere you, you can buy books, you should be able to get um, all three of mine. Um, and that's pretty much it, I think. Fantastic. Yeah. And as always, esteemed audience, find me at middlegradeninja.com. Go there, find out who's coming on the podcast, download your free copy of the Book of David, Chapter 1, and Banneker Bones. They're free. Go nuts. Um, Jesse, thanks so much for, for making the time and for being a truly, absolutely delightful and entertaining guest. I have really enjoyed our conversation this evening. Thank you. So have I. And thank you for having me. And I'm going to ask you to sign us off as I do every guest with our extremely ninja-like sign-off phrase that justifies the name of the show. And the sign-off phrase is hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? So I say hi-ya and what have you? Yes, ma'am. That's the whole thing? That's the whole thing. All right. Hi-ya and what have you.